Okay, here we go. Man. Y'all be praying for Adelaide. She went over to uh, Albany today to share her testimony at First Baptist in Albany. Or not First Baptist, but uh, Friendship Baptist. And y'all remember when um, Debbie, what was their last name? Golf coach Thompson. Yeah, uh, Debbie Thompson and Brad were here. Uh, that church, I think, was actually started by, or at least he had pastored it for a long time, by Debbie's father. So she's going over there. Uh, Paul Johnson, who's the FCA Big Country East director, or I guess he directs several places around here. Uh, he's the pastor there, and their church heavily supports FCA. And, he's, and it's funny because Adelaide's not an athlete anymore, uh, doesn't play any sports. But uh, they really support FCA heavily over there. He said, but my church is just a bunch of old people, and they never go to any of the things that they support. So he said, could she come over and share testimony so they could see kind of the, some of the things they're supporting? So she got to speak at the uh, Stanford FCA last week or week before last, and that was really a good experience. So proud of her for all she's doing. Also, anybody here, is any, uh, band kids? Have you got any band kids here? Allie, you the only one? Stand up. Stand up, Allie. So, Adelaide and Sawyer, they both went over there, so they're not here, but the band did really well at their contest yesterday, and boy, those judges were really judging, uh, you say hard, they, were, they had a high standard, and they weren't just handing out excellent Division I ratings. And, and so we saw a great band from Nakona, and they made a two, and we thought, oh, Winthorst made a three. We found the thing that we're better at than Winthorst. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, they made a three, and then we thought, oh, man, these judges are just, they're just, you know, they must be like, you know, your teachers used to bloody up the page with the red pen. They're like, these judges are judging really harshly, and, but Alney had done a great job. It was the best show they'd done all year and they sounded great, and their marching was sharp, and they got one. So really proud of, Allie was there in the pit, so really proud of you guys, Allie. Good job. So, so they go to area in two weeks, and then if they advance there, they can go to state. But that's no big deal for Allie, because she's already been to state and debate, so she knows what it's like to be on that level. So she does a great job, just a wonderful, wonderful student, so proud of you and all your friends. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going back to our study in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And our text will be today verses 5 through 11. So uh, I've uh, titled the sermon Discipline and Forgiveness. And again, our text this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 5 through 11. I know we're jumping right back into it and I'll explain where we are. I'll remind you what we've already been through here in a second. So you guys know that I did have a weird experience last time we were at Six Flags where for the first time I got off a roller coaster and I felt a little woozy. So that was a new experience. Uh, You know, late 40s are a really weird time. Gunner can, you know. Gunner and I are going through life together. Yeah, well, I'm just saying... I'm just saying that Gunner is like the blood brother I never had uh, or something, you know, it's like brother from another mother. 
but we like had a lot of the same experiences growing up, and we're probably experiencing, I mean, um, roller coasters the same way. But I got off that roller coaster, I thought, oh man, this is, this is a new experience to feel a little bit woozy. But I love roller coasters. I love theme parks. Here's why I love theme parks. You pay one price to get in, and then you can ride all you want the whole rest of the day. All right? So you pay one, you don't have to buy anything else. You just, you go in, you pay your admission fee, and then the whole park is yours to enjoy. Uh, all the good rides, and they've got super rides at our, our park in Arlington. But if you'll notice, if you go to Six Flags, that to get to the good rides, to get back there to the Riddler or the Catwoman Whip or whatever you want to ride, you have to walk past all these gift shops and Midway Games and photographers and other vendors trying to sell you things. And as a dad, you have to be very smart. When you get to the theme park as the dad, you have to pick out something that's in the back of the park. Like I say, we're going to ride the shockwave. And you have to keep your eye on the prize. You can't let your kids even take one glance to the right or the left, or they will want to buy something. But then at the end of the day, you got to walk past all those shops again, and you're worn down, and the kids have worn you down, and you're weak, and they know you like funnel cake. <laughs> or take Disney World. Have you ever been to Disney World? There's one of these kind of places to go. Not very many of you have been there. But really, raise your hand if you've been to Disney World. Okay, that's more of you. Y'all just don't tell the truth. Okay. Uh, <laughs> walk down this street that they call at the entrance to the park, Main Street, USA, which was modeled after Walt Disney's hometown, okay? But it's not just a quaint model of a hometown. Okay, to get to the castle, which is, that's the prize, to get to the castle where you can go off to all the different places in the park, you have to walk down an entire, uh, uh, probably two or three blocks of basically what is the mother of all gift shops. It stretches for blocks, it smells like chocolate chip, it smells like sugar, uh, chocolate chip cookies, smells like sugar, cotton candy, it smells like capitalism. <laughs> and it opens before everything else in the park, and it closes after everything else in the park closes. So it's there for you to buy. And so when you look at pictures of people, so everybody likes to put their stuff on Facebook, the next time you see the family at Disney World, and you, you take a close look at that picture, everyone is happy. And the kids are holding their bags of stuff. But look carefully at that dad. That's a fake smile. He's not really happy. You can see the tears he's crying on the inside. His eyes reveal it. There is sorrow there. Because he knows that Walt Disney literally had him coming and going. There was nothing he was going to do to escape it. And he tried so hard to keep his eye on the prize. And our sermon today is about how we deal with sin in the local church. And sometimes you realize that uh, sin, uh, I, guess, I guess when we stop and think about it, uh, sin in the Christian life is only dealt with in the local church. And usually the way we deal with it is either by not dealing with it or by dealing with it badly. And like so many times, whenever there's sin in the church, it's kind of like those gift shops at the beginning of the park. It's kind of a lose-lose situation or a Catch-22, or a Main Street USA. There's danger on the way in, 
And there's danger on the way out when you're dealing with sin. But if we will keep our eyes on the prize, if we remember we're at Six Flags and, 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 uh, and we, they're there to ride rides, okay? And if we'll remember that in the church, what we're here for is to conform to the image of Jesus Christ. Remember, I go to the theme park, I know the purpose. It's not to play the games. It's not to eat funnel cake. It's to go upside down and really fast on roller coasters, right? What's the eye on the prize? What, is the, what are we doing here at church? At church, what we're doing is we're seeking to conform to the image of Christ. We're seeking to help each other do that. And, and what our, our text today teaches us, that if we'll remember our purpose here, to conform to the image of Christ, we will not fall to the schemes of the devil as we go in to deal with sin in the church and as we come out of dealing with sin in the church. So I've got three points. I want to talk about sin that grieves the body of Christ. I want to talk about unforgiveness that can grieve the body of Christ and grieve the Lord. And I want to talk about the schemes of the devil against the church. And if you'll look there in your text at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5-11, through 11, that's what the text is dealing with. So let's talk about sin first. Look at verse 5. The apostle says, If anyone has caused grief... He's not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. So here's where we are in this letter, if you'll remember. We're talking about the Corinthian church. Paul has had a lot of problems with the Corinthian church. They've had a turbulent relationship. Even though he planted the church, there were factions that rose in the church. They all took sides. Some of them liked this preacher better. Some of them liked this preacher better. Some of them just said, I just listened to Jesus. I don't even like the preachers. So they had a lot of problems there in the Corinthian church. And in a sense, whenever the church would, would divide into factions and whenever they would question the authority of the apostles, what they were doing is they were rejecting Paul. So Paul, even though he had decided to come and see them, decided not to come and see them. He decided it would be better and maybe more helpful to write them because he thought if he visited them, it just might be too painful for him to bear and too painful for them to bear because they were so disobedient. They were so going their own way. They were so not listening to their spiritual father, their pastor, their apostle who was teaching them. So he sent Titus, and we learn this in chapter 7, verse 5 of this letter, he sent Titus to take another letter to them instead of going to see them. And so when Titus got there, they had apparently received the letter of 1 Corinthians, and they had repented, and they had begun to do what Paul told them to do. So Titus shows up, and they had dealt with specific sins that Paul had said, you got to deal with this. And they had dealt with the, the attitude that the church had toward authority and towards Paul's authority. So now in verse 5, we don't exactly know which of these situations he was referring to that he had mentioned to them earlier. But if you'll remember, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, there is a man who's a member of the church, and he's actually having an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. And he's unrepentant. And so here they are, coming to church every week, and Paul says, and y'all aren't doing anything about it. In fact, he tells them, y'all are proud of it. You're proud of this sin, and you're tolerating this man's sin. He said, even the pagans don't tolerate that kind of sin, and you're just welcoming him into the church, and you're proud of him. 
And then there were others in the church, perhaps a ringleader, in particular, maybe, uh, maybe several people, possibly could have been, that had been very cruel to Paul, who had been hurtful to the apostle, and they were tolerating that. And so I don't know, when you look at the commentaries about what verse 5 is referencing when it says, if anyone has caused grief, uh, there was a lot of grief being caused in the church. I think it def- definitely is something that applied to that unrepentant man. And perhaps verse 6 is speaking of that unrepentant man. But then as we get into the other verses in our text, he kind of broadens it out. He says, if anyone has caused grief. And so I think he could be talking about all the hurt that was taking place in the church. All the sin that they were having to deal with in the church. But Paul is expressing here in our text that he's glad that this church has dealt with the sin that was in their midst. So this is a a verse or a passage about church discipline. It's about when there's sin in the body and it's public sin, what do we do about it? Well, we can't do nothing. But the way that we handle it has to be right. And that's what he's talking to them because they've gone a little bit too far and we'll see uh, what, what he does there, what he tells them here in just a moment. So he says, if anyone's caused grief, he's not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it severely, too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority... Now, this is an interesting argument for church membership, isn't it? Now, there's lots of churches that don't have a formal membership. But at our church, we do receive members. We receive members by baptism, by letter, and by statement. Okay, so we receive you, and we'll consider you to be a member of the church, or you, or, or, and everyone else in the world. You're either So there's only two kinds of people in the world. There's members of First Baptist Church of Olney, and there's everybody else, right? So there's, there's us, and we are marked off and defined, but there's a particular membership of our church. And there was apparently a particular membership of the church there in Corinth. Because he says, in 1 Corinthians, he says, you should put the man out. So if you're going to put a man out, what had you done previously? You, you put him in. So some way he was in the church, they put him out. And then we also see here in this verse, there's a majority And he says the decision of the majority will be sufficient. So if you're going to have a majority, how do you determine the majority? you got to know how many people you have to to come to whatever 51% would be. So we know that even in the first century, we can look there and we can find evidence of church membership that functions like ours does here today in our church. That's why we do it this way. That's why we're congregational. There was a decision to be made about this man's sin. And it wasn't going to be the apostle making the decision. It wasn't going to be the pastors making the decision or the deacons making the decision, but the people, the majority, made the decision. So they were congregational in those days, just as we're congregational today as we follow their example. So the church, Paul says, by this man's sin was grieved. He said, I'm not so much grieved by the man's sin, but you're grieved And that's because when there's sin in the church, it affects the whole body. Now, the sin might have been against Paul. He might have been the main victim of the sin, but the sin itself was grievous to the whole church. So how do we deal with sin in the church? How do we arrive at dealing with sin amongst ourselves? Well, hopefully, we're proactive. All right, That's why you need to be here every week. And you need to be in your spot every week. I'm preaching to the people that are here. I need to be preaching to the ones that aren't. 
You need to come and sing with enthusiasm. You know who sings with the most enthusiasm in this whole congregation? It's a tie between Miles Branham and Larry Gandy. So if you ever get discouraged during the song service, you can either look over here or look over there, and those people will make you smile, and they will make you sing louder. All right, so good job to you. Am I embarrassing you, Miles? All right. <laughs> but he's a great, he's a great singer. He sings with his heart during rehearsal, and then he sings with his whole heart whenever we come in for worship. So appreciate that about Miles. But you need to be here. Sing with enthusiasm so people around you can hear. In your small group Sunday school classes or your Bible studies during the week, share about your life honestly. Encourage one another to keep following Jesus. Give with a cheerful heart. Listen to the Word of God as it's being taught. And there's a cumulative effect that over the course, I figured out my life, it's been about 2,400 Sundays. So I've, I've probably been to Sunday school a couple of thousand times. Been to church services way more than 2,400 because back before we didn't think that the whole Lord's Day belonged to Him, we used to have church on Sunday night. And we would have a sermon in the morning and we'd have a sermon at night. And we'd come to that and then we'd go out to eat. It was awesome because we came and we worshiped. We gave God the whole day, went and fellowshiped afterward. And so who knows how many sermons over the course of my life I've heard. But there's a cumulative effect to all that church all that being with the body, all the, the relationships that that created that still exist in my life. You realize I've got friendships and you've got friendships. I've got friendships in my life that were centered around Jesus Christ from back when I was 14, 15. I mean, gosh, I could even go earlier than that. I've got Christian friends who to this day, all these decades later, are still calling me and, and, and checking up and making sure that I'm keeping the faith. So there's an effect to being a part of the body. And there's an effect that all that has that helps us understand how serious sin is. How damaging sin is. The fact that you, you say, well, what about church discipline? Well, the fact that you're here every week, that's a discipline. You, the, the fact that you read your Bible and you pray and you fellowship with other people. These are disciplines. These are ways that we avoid sin. Most of it's done proactively. We want to understand sin. We want to help each other avoid sin by learning and by encouraging one another. And that way, when we are sinful and someone says, whoa, is that the right thing to say right there? You've got a relationship with them. You're not going to get mad at them because you understand that they love you and you're going to repent of it when you sin. That's how most of it deals, but sometimes we have to be reactive. Most time we're proactive. Sometimes we have to be reactive. That's a question we ask in our new member class. We say, what happens if someone in the church starts to give evidence that they're not a Christian? Maybe they've made a profession of faith, and they start to do something where you say, well, there's no way a Christian can do that and continue doing that without repenting. And what's the answer? What should we do as a church if we were dealing with things like this that the Corinthian church was dealing with? And the answer is, the people closest to them should express concern. They should speak the truth in love. They should ask their friends who they love in Jesus Christ hard questions. They should pray for that person. And hopefully, through those conversations and that love that they're showing, they'll win that person to repentance and then restoration. That person can have their relationship with God and even their relationship with the church restored. And here's the most awesome thing about that. 
As you understand, the kingdom of God is always arms wide open to those who repent. Now, there are consequences for actions, aren't there? Sometimes there are natural consequences. There are some things that you can do, and, and, and there's going to be a natural consequence. If you do this, this automatically happens. Sometimes those consequences are legal. Sometimes in the church, your qualifications to serve in a certain way, to be a teacher or a deacon or a pastor, those, you could disqualify yourself. But every single time I've ever seen it, and I'm sure in your experience too, any time someone has come to the church and said, I was wrong, I, made, I, I sinned, and I've hurt you, and I've hurt our witness, I've never ever been in a church where they said, well, we're not going to forgive you. Because the arms are always wide open to anyone who repents in the kingdom. That's the great news about this. Exactly. He liked that point. But sometimes it doesn't happen. Okay? Uh, sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes that person doesn't repent. And so what happens if, you tr- if you're making efforts and you're trying to bring that person to repentance and they just refuse, um, they refuse to repent, they refuse to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord in their life, then we have to do what Scripture tells us to do. And we have to use wisdom and with the most love and the most care that we can and and trying to make sure that there's understanding of what we're doing, we would have to refuse fellowship to that person. Paul says, don't even eat with that person. And so we understand that that would be talking about maybe not letting that person into your intimate life, okay, because eating with each other is a very intimate thing that we do, but also we would say when we gather together to take the Lord's Supper, we're not going to allow you to partake of it. Because this is a supper for Christians. This is a supper for, that, for people that we can say uh, are trusting in Jesus Christ and they're proclaiming and remembering what Jesus Christ has done in their life. And so how can it, this is why we say, hey, until the children trust in Christ and are baptized, let the plate pass. If you're here today and you're not a believer, please don't take this because this has meaning to us. We don't have people take the Lord's Supper who, who don't say Jesus is Lord. So if Jesus is not the Lord of your life, and you realize that at that moment when the supper's coming, we say, hold on, everybody, let's take a break for a minute. Let's stop and let's bow our heads and let's make sure if there's something in your life that's something between you and the Lord right now, get that right. If it's something between you and another person, go fix it real quick so that you can take this Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. It's an unworthy manner to take the Lord's Supper and say, I'm going to live however I want. Jesus, you're not my Lord. Give me some of that grape juice and that cracker. I would wonder why anybody would want to take it in the first place. Because is it not a remembrance of what, you, when you take it, you're saying, I believe Jesus, his body was sacrificed for me on the cross. I believe the blood of Jesus was spilled for me on the cross. So we don't want to take that if we don't believe it. We wouldn't baptize anybody who's not a believer. We don't give the Lord's Supper to people who aren't a believer. It's a way that we affirm one another's faith here in the church. And we, in the most loving way, and the world's going to say, well, that's mean. All right, well, uh, gosh, anybody could say that that's mean, right? They could throw a fit over it. But really, if somebody was under the impression that they were a Christian and they were involved in an incestuous relationship and the church was proud of it and they were giving them a seat of honor at the banquets that they were having, can you imagine? And that person is, is by the way that they're living, that man was showing that he was not regarding 
any of the teachings of Jesus on sexuality, that he was, he was committing adultery, okay, and he was willfully disobeying with his lifestyle the commands of the Lord. Now, if someone's doing that blatantly over and over and over again every single day and they're unrepentant, you and I are going to sin. We're going to make mistakes. Hopefully, whenever we come to the end of the day and we realize we've done some things that, that were sinful, we say, Lord, I, I, I was wrong today. And I acknowledge that your word is true. But if someone is living their life saying, I know God's word says this, I don't care, I'm going to do whatever I want. Is that the way a Christian acts? Is there any place or room for that in a true Christian life? No. No. Okay? So the way that you bring someone back to their senses is you say, you're not acting like a Christian. We don't, want, we don't know if you're a Christian or not, but we certainly don't want to make you think you're a Christian if you're not one, because then you're going to wind up in hell, and that's way worse than us not letting you take the Lord's Supper. So we're going to maybe shock you a little bit here by saying we, got, we have to kind of cut off the, the fellowship here, and we can't have you thinking that you're a member of the church because every member of our church we believe is saved. And so we've got to do something here, man. We've got to put you out. Well, what happened when they put the man out? That was the majority's punishment was they put him out of the church. What did he do? He came back and he repented. Apparently that's what we see here. So he says to them in verse 7, well, let me just make the point. Just put a period on the point. Okay, so can you just let sin go and not deal with it? No. You got to deal with it. Okay. You got to deal with it in your own life. We got to deal with it in the church. Because it grieves us all. It hurts the whole body. The reason that churches are so unhealthy is because we don't do anything about it. Okay. We don't, and, and that really is, un, I mean, we're like, well, we're not being mean, but we're also not being loving. Okay, but so, so that's why I would say on the way in, sin is hard to deal with because it's so much easier to not deal with it, okay? But then there's, it's difficult on the way out, too, because the man apparently came back, and they weren't forgiving him. He, he, he came back, and they were, they were withholding fellowship from him. Look what it says in verse 7. Now instead, he says. Now, so there had been punishment that the majority had decided, but he says, now instead, you ought to forgive him and comfort him so he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Then I think he's broadening the language out here, and he says, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I've forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. That is beautiful. Right, verses 7 through 11 show you the beauty of forgiveness. Look how beautiful this is. This is worth coming to church for, right there, those verses. Paul says, instead of ongoing punishment to continue to make him realize how bad he had been, and that's the danger, that ongoing punishment. He says, embrace the man. Embrace the repentant man and comfort him so that he's not overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I mean, one of the hardest things in life is being confronted by a friend about your sin. And it causes you like no other, no, no other thing to take a hard look at yourself. And when you ever take a hard, honest look at yourself and all the kinds of ugly that you have in your heart, it will break your heart. 
and you will feel that godly sorrow that leads to repentance that's in chapter 7 of our, uh, Paul says in chapter 7 of our book here. And so it says, man, that guy's going to be hurt because he's realizing just how rebellious he's been. So reaffirm your love for him. And so this man was punished by the majority. He repented. And now Paul says, and they dealt with it and it was difficult. But now as they're coming out of that season of discipline, there's a difficulty too that they're not wanting to forgive the way they should. And so Paul says, so if you forgive him, I forgive him. Look at verse 10. Anyone you forgive, I forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. I like this attitude. Paul was not worried about how the sin affected him. He's even saying, if I have anything to forgive, he's even just kind of downplaying any offense that he received. But what is his main concern here? It's for others. It's for the church. So imagine reading that if you were the ringleader against Paul. If you were the one that had stirred up all the trouble, you were stirring the pot and saying, well, Paul's not that great of a preacher. Have you ever seen the way he writes tough? But then when he comes here, he can barely even preach himself out of a bag or whatever. Okay? And Paul says, hey, if you forgive him, I forgive him. And I'm doing this in front of Jesus, so it's real. And I'm doing this for your sake, not on my own. Not for my own sake. And then he downplays the offense. He says, well, if there was anything to even forgive. And Paul's not trying to interject himself here into the trouble. And he's not even trying to interject himself here into the solution. And I can remember years ago, I was sitting in my office at law firm. It was an afternoon. I got a phone call. And a lawyer was calling me and asked me, did you do this? Did you draw? It was a document. Did you draw up this document? And I said, yes, I, I did. I, do that. I did that. Well, he just, he blew up on me. Um, it was, I was shell-shocked by the things he said to me. And until that day and after that day, no one has ever spoken to me that way in my life. It was, it was the greatest tongue-lashing I'd ever received. It was humiliating. It was hurtful. It was an older lawyer. I was a younger lawyer. Um, I don't know that I'd ever felt lower in my life when he was talking to me. And the worst thing about it, he was a deacon at a Baptist church. And I, I said, I, I don't know what to say. I, I said, maybe we can figure something out here. We can figure out what happened and hung up on me. It was probably about two or three hours later that night, he called me back. And he was profusely apologetic. He said, you didn't do anything wrong. You didn't do anything unethical. You didn't do anything unprofessional. He said, I was the one that was unprofessional. One of my clients was upset with me, and they come in, and they, take, they took it out on me. And I called you, and I took it out on you. And at that moment, there was a part of me that felt very vindicated. Do you remember when this happened? I don't know if you remember. I felt very vindicated when he said that, but I realized that I didn't really matter in this story. There was a lot going on. <laughs> I had drawn up a document for a fee, and it wasn't even a very important document. But there was a lot going on in that situation that I didn't know about. Family feuds, lies, suspicion. And I knew in that moment that the, whatever's going on here is a lot bigger than me. And so I didn't interject myself in it. And so I'm not the hero of this story. Um, and I told the guy, I said, 
look, don't worry about it. I'm just glad you're not mad at me. <laughs> I said, I was really shocked. I was just, I felt terrible. And, uh, you know, all I did was just say, you know, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. And that, but that, the hero of the story is that deacon, that lawyer. And in that conversation, when he apologized to me, he talked to me about his faith, and he said that he knew I was a believer, and that that's what hurt him the most about how he'd hurt my feelings. And, uh, and I was glad that he didn't even make it through the day without feeling sorrow over how he'd lost his temper at me. And I thought that that was really encouraging. I've always remembered that. And so I think Paul, he could have said, he could have said, well, you, you, well, look how wrong you were when you talked to me on the phone like that. You know, look how wrong you guys were. Boy, I knew once you came to your senses, you would have seen how bad y'all offended me. I'm an apostle, and you talk to me like that? I have, I, Jesus Christ himself has taught me, and you guys are going to come at me with this? Is that what he did? He said, if, if you forgive him, I forgive him, even, even if there was anything to forgive. I, to me, that is amazing. You see, Paul knew it wasn't about him. It was about Christ being formed in those people. See, he had his eyes on the prize. He had his eyes on the roller coaster in the back of the park, right? <laughs> he wasn't going to get caught by those gift shops. <laughs> he was saying, hey, this is about Jesus and this church and about them becoming more like Christ. Paul's pride and his need to be vindicated, you know where that was? That was crucified with Jesus on the cross. He was denying himself that satisfaction. Isn't that what forgiveness is? You just deny yourself the satisfaction to get even. So Paul's pride and his need for vindication crucified on the cross. So he tells those people, forgive, comfort. Don't pile on the, the repentant person. He already said he was sorry. He says, especially don't do it on account of me because I don't matter. If you forgive him, I forgive him. And so Paul says, we don't want to pile on, okay? If y'all forgive, I forgive, everything's fine, because we don't want to be outwitted by the devil. Look at verse 11. Why do we have this mind? Why do we have this attitude about forgiveness? Why do we have to deal with sin the right way and then apply forgiveness on the way out? Because we don't want Satan. He says, we don't want Satan to outwit us. Satan might we want to act this way so Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So you see how Satan here is like old Main Street USA. He's got you coming and going. If you're not aware of it, you're going to practice dealing with sin badly or you won't deal with it at all. And then on the way out, you won't be forgiving. You see, here's how Satan can work. He can tempt you to sin by ignoring sin. He can tempt you to sin by not being forgiving. He can tempt you to sin by being too harsh. He'll try to make you think that obedience doesn't matter, and then he'll try to make you think that obedience is everything, and you're not doing it. So back in the days of the early church, per persecution would break out. And in the first, second, third century in the Roman Empire, before the Roman Empire kind of became Christian under Constantine, when, it, when anything would go bad, the Christians would get blamed. So if the harvest failed that year, well, whose fault must this be? Our crops didn't come in. Well, I'll tell you whose fault it is. We've got all these atheists in our town. So we're going to go get those atheists, and that's what they called the Christians. They called the Christians atheists. 
because they didn't worship the Roman gods. They said, let's go get those atheists and bring them in here, the ones that talk about Christ. And they'd bring them in and they would say, do you worship Christ or do you worship Caesar? And, they would, and, and so they would stand there and some would say, well, I worship Christ. Or they'd beat them. They would put them in jail. They'd do whatever. And then they'd go to some guys and say, do you believe in Christ? And they would say, oh, no. These were members of the church. And they would say, no, no, no. Uh, I don't believe in Christ. Uh, hail Caesar. Well, you know what the pagans would do? They would make fun of them mercilessly because they knew they were members of the church and they had just denied their God. And those Christians would feel terrible. Many times they would say, do you deny Christ? Yes. Kill them anyway. Put them back in prison. Do whatever. And some in the church thought the highest thing you can do, the, the, the highest form of faith would be to be martyred for Christ. And so in the church, we think about the church council that showed up at Nicaea where all these men basically had to be carried in or they limped in or they came in with one eye because one had been gouged out. You know, these pe there were people in the church that had really suffered for Christ. And so at that time, there was a division in the church. What do we do with these people who denied Christ? What do we do with them? And some would say, well, we're not letting them back in if they denied Christ. If you deny Christ, you're out. And so those, those that had denied Christ, they, would, they say that many of them would stand at the door of the church and they would beg every Sunday, please, we're sorry. Please forgive us for what we did. Please let us back in the church. We were wrong. We'll die for Christ a thousand times now. It was a moment of weakness, whatever it was. And over time, here's what the church realized. Well, there had been one that had denied Christ named Peter. And when Peter denied Christ, what did Christ do? He forgave him. He restored him. And so the church began to restore those brothers and sisters. And they began to develop amongst them a spirit of forgiveness, which was the spirit of Christ. And we can, we can say the same thing. We don't want the devil to win by not dealing with sin. We don't want the devil to win by not offering forgiveness. Because the devil is always going to be convincing you and scheming to convince you that it's no big deal. He's going to scheme to convince you that forgiveness is no big deal. Forgiveness is a big deal. Sin is a big deal. And we can see on that cross... When we look at the cross, and once again, I look upon the cross where you died, I kind of thought of that song. We, when we look at the cross, what do we see? How do we get the balance between dealing with sin, and how do we get the balance between dealing with forgiveness? Well, we look at the cross. What do you see on the cross? You see the magnitude of sin's effects, and you see the magnitude of forgiveness. It's all right there on the cross. Jesus is dealing with sin, and he's forgiving you. It's all right there at the same time. So what are we called to be? People of the cross. We know that sin is deadly. We know that forgiveness is lovely. And so it's our job to stand watch over one another. God has given us each other to care for. And to love and to guard one another. And to care for each other's souls in the most tender of ways.
in the same way Christ cares for your soul. Always ready to love those who need grace. Always being aware of Satan's schemes. Because Satan knows how hard it is is for us to keep our eyes on Jesus and not on ourselves. But let's, let's be people of the cross. Let's remember at every moment, yes, we must deal with sin, but we must also love and forgive. Let's pray together.